Hello, everyone, and welcome back to How to Chess. Of course, this is a weekly chess improvement show where we try to give you some actionable advice in a quicker format to uh, take to your weekend tournament or whatever you may be doing. And this week, we are joined by a South African-based, Indian-born grandmaster, trainer, and chessable author. Um, he's best known for on chessable for his course called Timeless Technique Strategic Endgames, in which he collaborated uh, with FM Daniel Barish. Um, he's got... Tons of achievements over the board. He won the Under-10 World Youth Chess Championship in 2005. Came in third in the Under-20 World Junior Chess Championship in 2011. He won the South African Open in 2017 and 2018. And being that his course is on endgames, that's what we're going to discuss today. Try to find out sort of how to blend the practical and the technical. But before we dig into it, let's welcome him to the show. Grandmaster Sahaj Grover, how are you? Um, feeling great, Ben. Thank you for this uh, great introduction. Um, yeah, I'm very, very happy to be here. Excellent. Yeah, and I'm excited to dig into this topic because I think a lot of people, when they run programs like AIM Chess or just like in terms of like interacting with a coach or getting some feedback, they feel like they need to work on end games. And often they go straight to the technical manuals. I mean, at the beginning level, there's the famous uh, Jeremy Soman's Endgame course, which is a, a great resource, kind of at the intermediate level, although it runs the gamut, is, of course, Chessable's famous course, 100 Endgames You Must Know. And once you start to approach a level like yours, there's Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual. And all of these books have their place, but there's more to Endgames than just knowing cold positions like the Lucina position um, or the King and Pawn Endgames or Queen Against Rook as you get more advanced or whatever it may be. So my first question for you, Sahaj, is how do you balance studying technical endgames as opposed to just sort of observing how a strong player converts an advantage? That's a good question. Um, I would first start by um, knowing my basics, which is basically the fundamentals of, of chess. As you mentioned, you know, Lucina, Philidor, uh, frontal attack, you know, king pawn in games, and 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 so on. But as you progress and as you get better um, through those in games, it's not just important to know them theoretically. It's also important to play them accurately. So, like an example of this is, I have found many times that you know the famous uh, rook bishop versus rook position. Um, um, it is winning, but I know many players are not able to actually convert it over the board. So it is extremely important that you try to um you know play it practically and gain that experience so that when it happens over the board um you know you are you are just better prepared um with that being said you know once once we have um you know established our fundamentals and uh, you know once you've gained some practical experience i think it's important to you know dig a little deeper and get into uh, get into the side of practical end games where um, theory is not just everything, you know, you are trying to not enter a theoretical uh, situation, so to speak, because uh, let's say if you are a pawn up or, or in a rook end game, most of the times that end game is going to be a draw. So your idea is to not enter a theoretically drawn position and try to confuse your opponent as much as possible because you are aware that there is, there is a theoretical end game that is a draw that can arise. Um, it, in a situation like this. Similarly, you know, um, if you're on the defensive side, then you would try to enter that theoretical endgame, you know, and you, because then it makes your job a lot easier to, you know, to hold off that position. Um, 
so yeah this is why i i i i always say that it's 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 much better to um establish your fundamentals and only then you know dig into the practical side of um of of in games pretty much gotcha so basically you you lay the lay the foundation get the building blocks and then from there you proceed to um to actually studying how end games are played uh, from sort of start of the end game to finish of the end game. Now, my question for you, Sage, and this might be tough to answer in what's predominantly an audio only format, but like, how do we know when we're ready to make that transition? Is there like a certain uh, rating level or are there just like a certain list of end games or how, how do we know when we're ready to start studying complete end games and not just uh, learning the basic um, technical end games? So, um, well, as as someone who works at Chessable, I will definitely recommend the hundred and games final test to you. <laughs> okay, one hundred percent. And uh, apart from that, I think it's very important to gain practical experience because um, knowing the position theoretically is not just enough. You know, if if you know a Lucina position, you don't have to set it up the exact same way because Lucina works. Doesn't matter what on what file. Okay, except for the rook point, doesn't matter on what file the pawn is. It will work the same way. So it's more. It's much more important to um, you know, uh, perfect your technique rather than to memorize what the position says. So once you're able to do that on, you know, not just Lucina or Philidor, but slightly more complex positions uh, or or complex techniques like, uh, you know, the frontal attack or, uh, you know, the long side, short side principle, something like that. Once you're able to perfect those or, you know, be... I, I don't want to say 100% accurate, but you're if you're accurate most of the time, then that is a time where you would sort of I try to go into end games in general. I personally, you know, was a was a huge fan of King Pawn end games to begin with, and uh, I am very proud to say that I have studied the entire section of uh, of of the King Pawn end games from from Dvoretsky's book. It took me wow. a lot of time, but I am very proud to say that that I have actually finished that before. And uh, you know, this is a, uh, it it it's not just enough for me to know those positions take uh, know those positions uh, theoretically because. I am definitely going to forget them. So it's much, much more important to rather play them out. So you, so you remember some patterns, um, you know, from your past experiences. And and I I think that is more um, crucial in this case. Okay. Well, it's good to hear that you've done the work. And I was actually wondering about that because as someone who was uh, one of the top youth players in your country, you often sort of hear stories about like, you know, if you're if you're playing one of these top kids, you know, steer them into the end game. And I know I saw you mentioned in an interview you did on the Chessable blog that you were sort of a dynamic tactical player. So so it's good that you did that work, Sahaj, but I'm curious when you started sprinkling in the end game work in, in your own experience. Um, from very early on, actually, uh, um, this is sort of a habit I also try to, you know, implement with my students because I, I believe it's very important to establish your fundamentals before you move on to opening theory or, 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 you know, middle game. Um, yeah, in general. Uh, but yeah, um, I think it's way more important to, um, you know, study your, uh, study the, the theoretical side of things. And uh, I started basically when I was four years or five years old from from an in-game book. I believe the wow. when I started off was Chess Fundamentals by Capablanca. I, I don't take my word for it, but as as far as my memory goes, that is that is the first book, the first in-game book that I remember studying. Um, or, you know, I didn't study it at the time. I was, uh, someone read it to me and then of course I had to right. you know, lay it out and, you know, and then 
and so on. Okay. And you mentioned Capablanca. Do you have a favorite endgame player? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, it's difficult. The I mean, when I was younger, you know, I had Rubinstein, Capablanca, uh, of, of of course. And but nowadays, I mean, if if you don't say Magnus, I mean, I don't think it's fair because it's he's he's clearly the best in-game player in the world, and I think in history as well. That that is just my opinion. But yeah, um, from uh, at his level, I think uh, nobody else does it better than him. Excellent. Yeah, and I saw in Timeless Technique, you've got some Magnus Endgames in there. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that, that experience is personally, you know, very, very painful for me. <laughs> well, we should say what the experience is. I'm laughing because we, we were discussing before we started recording, but Sahaj, why don't you uh, set the stage for, for listeners and viewers? Well, so we're playing in the Pro Chess League and he's and Magnus starts off with one knight a three, which already, you know, is 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 quite typical of 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 Magnus. But you know, at that point I'm thinking, okay, you know what? I cannot lose this, I cannot lose this. And and then we we end up into this middle game position and we just exchange the queens. And I find this very nice idea of bishop e2 and bishop takes f3. I'm super happy with my position. And then Magnus does something really strange, which is to bring his rook from d1 to d7, which I did not expect him to do at all. And then I respond that by playing knight to e5, hitting his rook. And to my surprise, you know, Magnus does not defend the rook. Um, he just leaves the rook as it is. Um, he, I mean, he defends it by his rook, but I can still take his exchange, you know, and I can be completely um, winning after that as I'm exchange up for nothing. But I don't know what happened to me at that at that stage, but... I mean, I'm trying to convince myself that it was a black spot, that it, you know, it won't happen again. But I really don't don't know what happened. But I just didn't see it. And even though my previous move was to take the rook, I just simply didn't see that that rook was hanging on on the next move. I, you know, I guess this is what you would what you would call a Magnus effect. You know, right. where where you, where you don't really expect someone like Magnus to make a mistake like that. So yeah, I I I, I believe that's what happened. And uh, yeah, it, at least you know. After that, um, he gave me a very nice lesson on <laughs> on uh, on end games. After that, as mentioned in my course, so you know something good came came of it. At least that's that's funny. Yeah, you always hear that about. I feel like the world champions in particular, where they have this aura, and you just sort of feel the power and make mistakes that you wouldn't otherwise make. It's amazing that it works still over the computer, even 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 when you're just playing. Um, playing online you still you still feel the effect I, I guess i'm gathering you were a little more nervous than usual for that one sahaj 100 percent, 100 percent. it's not every day you play magnus so it was a uh, uh you know uh, of course it was an honor it itself to play against magnus but yeah it's playing against him and playing against anybody else's you know there's a huge difference and i i wish you know i tell my students as well that you know this is you should always look at the board not at the player but uh, and you know it feels a little wrong because I'm I myself was not able to achieve this um, this thing at on that day. Um, so you know I was quite disappointed with myself that that it actually happened. But you know at the end of the day he is a world champion. He is you know he 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 does have that aura. You know and 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 deservedly so. So yeah yeah and I'm guessing that's not the only Magnus Endgame in Timeless Technique. Um no no, no I think. No, no, I believe there. Are, that's 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 the only one, if I can remember. But I am planning on an update sometime in the next month, uh, or maybe in December, uh, where I will add a couple of uh, 
end games by you know uh, high class players and including Magnus himself because I've been working on some updates in the past you know along with my co-author uh, Daniel Barish and we have decided to you know um, try and you know revamp the course a little bit and you know add a few more positions uh, yeah so definitely there will be more content by Magnus as well Excellent. And it sounds great. And I know that you say a good sort of uh, precursor is to make sure that you pass the final test of 100 end games, you must know. But if someone's maybe thinking about just diving right into the course of you and Daniel, could you give any sort of rating guideline of uh, for whom you think timeless technique might be most appropriate, Sahaj? Um, well, I think that uh, our course was a little easier than we anticipated because in, because this this concept is not easy to understand but I, I think the way it was written and from the feedback that we have gotten it has come to our attention that you know um, that it, it is actually a lot easier to understand um, you know the way it's written and you know the way the positions are presented so I would recommend uh, this course before you study 100 end games in that sense. oh okay because it it does have some theoretical elements, it, although it is not about theory at all, but um, it has some theoretical elements to it. Um, so yeah, I would uh, in terms of ratings, you know, there is a uh, one of the users left a very nice review on uh, on on our course where they actually sh- uh, showed what which courses you need to study and in order, and oh, that okay. was fantastic. I would re- I would recommend everybody to you know go check out that review and just you know follow that order, which is just uh, which is exactly how one should study um, the end games. Okay, and we're a bit over time, Sahaj, But uh, last thing before we ra- we sum up and then maybe talk a little about what you're working on currently. But I also saw just to give to give viewers and listeners a little more context. You mentioned in in the aforementioned interview that you feel like people should spend an equal amount of time on uh, different aspects of the game in terms of uh, how much to study end games. Oh, 100%. Um, because, uh, you know, I've, I actually, that comment is more, you know, geared towards uh, people who spend hours on openings and not any time on anything else. Because I've, I, I, I believe, you know, I've, and I've faced this myself, you know, some of my students have had this issue as well, where they, one, one move out of theory and they don't know what is happening on the board. So it is extremely crucial that you spend equal amounts of times on you know, opening, middle game, and end game. So if you have three hours, spend one hour each. If you have an hour, if you have an hour and a half, you know, 30 minutes each and, you know, so on. Uh, just this, just so that there is some consistency in your play. And yeah, because I, I don't think that, you know, end games are more important than openings, but, but, more often than not, at least in today's day and age, with the uh, with you know computers and and engines taking over, it's 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 sort of hard to not look at the engine and you know, um, you know, just sort of make your own conclusions. You know what about what which opening to play or what to do. And I believe it's um, it's equally important that we you know give attention to middle games and and we give attention to end games as well. Okay. Excellent. Well, a good note to wrap up on. So, Sahaj, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to summarize what we've learned so far, and then let's hear about what else you're up to. Does that sound good? Great, great. Okay. And we are back with my three takeaways from Sahaj, because, of course, endgames are something that I I always... It's one of those things I always want to work on more, and I, like Sahaj was alluding to, um, 
in my case, I maybe spend too much time on tactics, but also on openings, and uh, it, it's important. I mean, often uh, just playing an in-game correctly can just immediately swing the result of a game uh, half a point in any direction, or sometimes in tragic circumstances, a full point in any direction. Um, so here are three things that I've uh, taken away from my conversation with Grandmaster Sahaj Grover. Number one is, of course, know your fundamentals. Um, I was impressed because, again, I had my sort of preconceived notion that as a former youth champion, um, that, that Sahaj would be someone who was just sort of naturally crushing people tactically and not doing the work for end games. But as he revealed, I mean, he's been studying Capablanca basically since he was in diapers. So um, it's important to lay the foundation before you move on to the practical side, which brings me to number two, which is to study the practical side of endgames. And of course, timeless techniques is a great way to do that. I often recommend Endgame Strategy by Sheroshevsky. You could study the greats, as Sahaj mentioned, Capablanca, Rubinstein, and the list goes on. This guy, Magnus Carlsen, apparently knows what he's doing as well. Um, and point number three is just do the work. I was really impressed with what Sahaj said about putting in the work on the, the King and Pawn endgames in Dvoretsky's endgame manual, which, of course, is very advanced. I mean, it's sort of a master-level uh, tome, which you hear a lot of uh, strong players like Sahaj saying, like, you know, it just collects dust on my, my bookshelf. <laughs> like, I got it because I was told to get it and because every master-level player is supposed to have it, but I haven't looked at it, you'll hear them say. Um, so it was really impressive that part of the reason he's able to... Uh, it's been able to attain the success he has is because he he put in the work on that aspect of his game as well as the others. So thank you, Sahaj, for all these insights. And um, before we were recording, you were mentioning that you're working on another chessable course. So dare we say what you have in the pipeline? Um, well, I'm working on two chessable courses at, at, at the moment. Uh, one of them, I'm, uh, I'm acting as a presenter. This course is on the Chagorin repertoire for black, uh, basically after D4. I, I have answered probably about 100 comments on the forums where they ask, is it against E4 or D4? So I feel you know that I have to mention what it's, <laughs> what it's against. And uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a pretty dynamic uh, repertoire. And um, yeah, I'm quite excited about it, actually, because it's, uh, it's new, it's fresh, and, and it's working. Um, so that's D4, D5, C4, Knight, C6? That is correct. That is correct. Okay. But it also covers, you know, London, Trumpovsky, and uh, some of the others, like Kali system, and, 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 and other sidelines as well that White can play. So it's a full repertoire for Black, for players who want to play Knight, C6. Um, you know, and, 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 and I see that, you know, there is quite, quite a bit of craze um, um, for that specific move because it hasn't been covered on Chessable before. So I'm quite excited to see how it does. Um, then there's another course that I'm working on, and this will be, uh, I should have mentioned probably before that the, the course on Chigorin is, um, is not just mine. It's also with my long time, long time, uh, one of my best friends, uh, his name is Grandmaster Abhijit Gupta. Uh, he's also a world junior champion. You know, he's, people call him Mr. Commonwealth because he has won Commonwealth, I believe five times already. So yeah, he's the one who's doing the works for that course. So, you know, um, I, I, and and I've seen the work, and it is uh, it is quite high quality, I must say. And the second course, I'm acting as a solo author, um, and this is going going to be on the four knights, a Spanish version. So when you play e4, e5, knight f3, knight c6, knight c3, knight f6, and then bishop b5, when you don't go for the scotch, but rather the Spanish instead. 
Um, once again, this is going to be a full repertoire, so it so it doesn't just cons, uh, you know uh, contain the four nights. It also contains Petrov, Pelado, um, you know some of the other uh, second move sidelines that Black has. Uh, yeah, so so it will be a full repertoire that uh, White has, and I'm I, I've already worked on some of the files uh, for the four nights course already, but uh, it is it is probably going to be published next year. I would assume in February March time. Um, but yeah, um, no specific date has been set yet. But yeah, the 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 Chigorin course, on the other hand, I, I, we are trying to finish um, most likely by November or December. We will see how it goes. Um, but yeah, with with recordings, you know, it can always um, it can always you know it depends on um, you know how fast I'm able to record. It is a lot to do, ultimately. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty busy. So dare I ask, Sahaj, if you're going to be able to compete at all, or is it too much with uh, working on multiple courses at one time right now? Not anytime soon, I will say, because uh, I have a lot on my plate. And, you know, on top of that, I have a nine-to-five uh, accessible as well as publishing manager. So um, definitely, you know, uh, I will I will not play any tournaments in the, at least for this year. Then, which is weird because I think this is my first year that I have not played a single classical game, which is kind of sad if I think about it. Right. But uh, I will definitely make up for it next year. And um, you know, I want to go out and I want to play. And it's 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 been quite some time. And you know, with uh, of course, COVID is still very real. But uh, with with the restrictions being lifted, you know, tournaments happening again, I would definitely want to you know uh, participate more um, just in general. Yeah, I mean, during these COVID times, it's um, as valid a time as ever to uh, take a break and focus on on your professional work. So, Sahaj, lots of great insights, and look forward to uh, the um, the Shigorin course, which um, I'm I'm thinking about naming it the Reverse Jabava. What do you think of that as a name? I think it might sell a few <laughs> that <courses>. is clever. <laughs> That's clever. I'll I'll actually make a petition for this. <laughs> okay. So that's clever. <laughs> so we'll look forward to the reverse job of uh, and the Spanish Four Nights as well. So thanks again, Sahaj. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's 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 a it's an honor to be on this show and and you're doing a great job of it. Thanks, I appreciate it. 